because God has provided in Jesus Christ, there is no need for anyone here to have a prayer life that is ineffective. The truth is, every living soul can potentially have an effective prayer life, an effective walk with God. In fact, the worst sinner among us today could go before God and cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the greatest miracle a human could ever experience would transpire immediately, instantaneously, and forever with that cry unto God because of what Jesus Christ has provided. There is hope for every person that is still breathing to walk with God in a powerful, effectual, effective prayer life. And with that, I want to invite you to the Gospel of Luke, and especially Luke chapter 6 and 11 and 22. Uh, The Gospel of Luke has more to say about the prayer life of Jesus than any other of the Gospels. And it's no wonder. Satan is so frightened by the reality and the power of your prayers, he'll do everything necessary to hinder them. You're familiar, of course, with C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, and it is a book that imagines the kinds of conversations and strategy sessions that take place in hell among the demons. The senior demon is Screwtape, and he counsels his young nephew, Wormwood, and he gives him some advice about hindering the Christian and the church and how to advance the will of demons and the devil. And he says this to Wormwood. He says, interfere at any price and in any fashion when people start to pray. For real prayer is lethal to our cause. You're going to have to understand that forever and forever and forever there will always be some source of struggle in your heart and life about prayer and you've got to be determined now and forever if you're going to have an effectual prayer life to engage the battle and to do holy warfare against those things that hinder your prayer life. And so what I'm encouraging you to do is to come up to the next level of prayer. Christ made it possible. He bled on the cross. And so the Father, if you've repented and placed faith in Christ, the Father no longer has a beef against you to where He would reject you and keep you out of His presence. Instead, if you've repented and placed faith in Jesus Christ, the doors are flung open to the throne room. And the King wants you to come. And when you come, you find that Jesus Christ has made Him your Father. And so he's made all of this possible. He's given you great and precious promises by which you can obtain holiness and purity before God and victory. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, with his example in teaching, advocated next-level praying. Uh, He taught prayer in Luke 11 and in Luke chapter 18. We'll look at those in just a moment. But then he modeled prayer as well. He did so at the beginning of his ministry when he launched his ministry in Luke, um, uh, actually in Mark chapter 1 verses 9 and 10, at his baptism in Luke 3.21, when he called his disciples who would change the world in chapter 6 verse 12, whenever uh, Peter confessed him as Christ in chapter 9 verse 18, at his transfiguration in chapter 9 verses 28 and 29, when he taught the disciples prayer in chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, right before Peter's denial, 
He advocated prayer in chapter 22, verse 32. And then in Gethsemane, and when he's dying on the cross, he cries to God in prayer. And so at the most significant points in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, we find him praying or teaching prayer. And he set the trajectory for the church that would follow him. Because in the book of Acts alone, we find the church praying at least 25 times in the book of Acts alone. And so you can take prayer to the next level. Well, how is that? Well, you need to understand what next level praying is. One, next level praying gasps at cultural corruption. Next level praying gasps at cultural corruption. Let's just imagine that you moved from Georgia to Alaska in the wintertime. Do you think that your winter clothing would be adequate for sub-zero temperatures? Can you imagine if you wore the winter clothing there that you wear in Georgia? Can you imagine stepping out on that first day of a blustery winter and the kind of gasp you would have at the cold air? Ladies and gentlemen, in my lifetime, in my lifetime, our culture, our nation, and to a large degree, the South and the Bible Belt have moved from the warm sunshine of Georgia to the frigid temperatures of Alaska. And I don't know about you, but I'm gasping at it. I'm horrified. And we've got to be frank. There are some things that are just absolutely mind-boggling that take place even in the Bible Belt. Now, Jesus anticipated this in Luke chapter 11, where He taught the disciples prayer. And He said in verse 2, when you pray, He said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, so they're heavenly realities. Hallowed be your name. Now, why would we ever pray, hallowed be your name? Because there's a temptation to stain the name of Almighty God and to connect the name of God with things that are not worthy of Him. So we have to pray, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Why would we ever pray for something like that? Because there are alternative kingdoms and competing kingdoms. So we had to pray for this kingdom to come. And then, give us this day our daily bread. It's possible for the supply lines to be cut off. And Jesus is saying, pray for daily bread. Then forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Why would we ever pray for that? Well, we would pray because we're tempted to sin. And sometimes we're weak and sometimes we're deceived. And we've got to ask God for forgiveness. But then sometimes people offend us and wound and harm and hurt us in sinful ways. And so we have to be very careful to forgive others. And then he goes, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Well, why would he ever suggest that we pray that or command that we pray that? Because we are in the midst of spiritual combat and a spiritual warfare. Jesus was not unaware of the real issues of life. And I want to outline three to you today that compel us to pray. One is the anarchy by the lawless. Matthew 24, 12, Jesus said, Sin will abound. As the day comes closer for Jesus to return, sin will abound. Paul talked about this in 2 Timothy 3.1. In the last days, perilous times will come. In fact, friends, I've got to tell you, in our day, it's very, very hard. It's very, very hard to determine who is right and who is wrong in many ways. Uh, but I, I, just to clarify, in case somebody's mistaken, right will always be right no matter who does it? And wrong will always be wrong, even if everyone does it. God does not change. 
His standard remains the same. The Word of God cannot be broken. And so there's anarchy by the lawless. Then there's acceptance of lying. God complained through Isaiah in Isaiah 59, 14. Truth has fallen in the streets. I recall when I was in college, my freshman year, reading the biography of a former secretary of the interior for a presidential administration. You know, that's the kind of thing you do in college. You read biographies of obscure people. But uh, I happened to read this one, and early in his administration, the Secretary of the Interior, who handles the environment for, on behalf of the federal government, he met with an environmental group, and they were expecting a very difficult meeting, and they were expecting a hard time with the Secretary of Interior, but they came to the meeting, and they found an awful lot of common ground. And they found that they had some mutual concerns and even some methods they were going to use to protect the environment. Uh, that's not what they expected from me. So they had this productive meeting. They set up future meetings. And when the meeting was over, this environmental group went out to the microphones where the media was waiting on them and gave a blistering report of the meeting. Now, the meeting was very productive, a happy meeting full of wonderful, pleasant surprises. But the press meeting and the press conference afterwards was blistering, harsh, and awful, where they condemned the Secretary of Interior. What they had done is that they had written their press release before the meeting, and they refused to change it because they needed to raise money from their constituency, and they could not ever imagine giving the President at the time and the Secretary of Interior a victory in this arena. Truth has fallen in the streets. In other words, in our day, in many places, not all places, but many places, especially some in the centers of power, what is true is not what conforms to reality. That's your definition of truth and mine. It corresponds to reality. What is real is true, but what is true to too many is what gives me more power or helps me with my fundraising, no matter what the truth is. And so acceptance of lying. It's a standard operating procedure among many not all, but many in the centers of power. I was watching the media the other day commenting on a national figure. And they played clips of him making a particular statement. And then they came back and said, we don't know why the world doesn't trust the media. And they just lied about the guy. When you compare what they were saying about him compared to his clip. And why do you think we don't believe you? Quit lying about people. It may be standard operating procedure, but ladies and gentlemen, it is still untrue before the presence of Almighty God. It may be common amongst you, but it's not common amongst us. Anarchy by the lawless, acceptance of lying, and then a new aggressiveness by Lucifer. 1 Peter 5.8 says, the devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Satan is like a lion. He is hungry, and you and I are on his menu. And quite frankly, quite frankly, from the looks of it, he's rather obese. He's been very, very effective at tracking down his prey. Vance Hadner said one time, What we're seeing in the hideous crimes of today is not ordinary wickedness, but demonism, and Vance Habner said that in the mid-1970s. A demonism. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Now if I were the devil, and to clarify I'm not, but if I were the devil, <laughs> I would get more aggressive in this day. Because there's greater opportunity with technological advances and other things, and the burgeoning missionary movement, especially south of the equator, 
uh, there's more opportunity to magnify Jesus Christ. And so I've become especially hostile. I'm telling you, listen to me carefully. When you get serious about Jesus, and a church gets serious about the mission of Christ, it attracts demonic attention. And they go into overdrive to hinder what we're doing. Now, Vance Havner said uh, something else that summarizes what I'm trying to say here. He said, Civilization reminds me of an ape playing with the blowtorch in a room full of dynamite. He said, We're living in a day of guided missiles and misguided men and women. He said, I watched in Florida a space mission launched. I watched astronauts go into space on TV in the corner of my hotel room. But I could look out the window into a park where I dare not walk. I thought of the paradox of it all. We're smart enough to walk on the moon and not safe enough to walk in the park. And that is the cultural reality. And then he goes on to say and applies this to the people of God. The reason we don't have revival and a powerful movement of God is that the times are desperate but the saints are not. Now, what would you think of someone whose health was such that they can move from summertime in Georgia to wintertime in Alaska and not tell the difference in the temperature and not gasp at the temperature difference? Ladies and gentlemen, you're not talking about a living person. You're talking about a corpse. And one of the reasons God doesn't use some people is that they simply are not aware or they don't care about cultural corruption that that surrounds them, and they don't turn that disappointment, that gasp, into prayer. Take your prayer life to the next level by changing your gasps into grasps. Your gasp at the cultural corruption into a grasp of the power of God in prayer. So next level praying gasps at cultural corruption. But there's a second thing. Next level prayer groans at personal conflict. Now, Paul did this in Romans 7, 18. He said uh, in that whole chapter, what I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, I do. And then in verse 18, he says, nothing good in me, that is my flesh, dwells. And how to make good happen, I do not find in me. He would later express in Galatians 5, 17, the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So not only are we concerned and gasp at the culture, beloved, we gasp at ourselves. We groan at the conflict, the civil war that's going on between us. And we've got to appreciate the reality of this, not become discouraged by it, but become determined by it. Now, Jesus alludes to this in Luke chapter 22 when he's speaking to Peter. Luke chapter 22, verse number 31, he said, uh, something to Simon that I think is very applicable, very real, and very timely for us. In Luke 22, verse 31, a few pages over, he said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Then verse 32, but I prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So Simon, I'm emphasizing your humanity by not using Peter, but by using Simon. Satan's after you. And you're going to struggle, but when you return, strengthen your brethren. Well, look what Peter says in verse 33. Well, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. So he rejects the counsel of Jesus. Then he said in verse 34, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. 
The best among us is liable to the failure of Peter. We've got to embrace that reality, that we are a walking civil war. One moment we may have the very best of intentions, and the next moment we may be just like Peter. There's a reason why this appears often in the Scripture. Peter did not appreciate the internal personal conflict that was going on within him, and some fail today because they do not admit that they are both flesh and touched by the Holy Spirit when they're in Jesus Christ. And therefore, they don't compensate for it. Don't get discouraged by that. Instead, take your prayer to the next level. Now, Alan Redpath said this. He said, when God uses someone in His service, the first thing He does is show him his utter inadequacy, insufficiency, and unworthiness for the task. And so if you're convinced I'm not worthy and I'm not adequate, you are on the precipice of being used mightily by God. The person that is confident that he or she can be used by God, and of course God would use me, and that doesn't turn into heartfelt, leather-lunged prayer is the person God won't use. But the person that is convinced that they're inadequate and that they're unworthy is the person that's on the precipice of being used by God. And so when God isn't using someone, it may be because they've not come to grips with this internal conflict going on within their soul. I know one woman did. In my last pastorate before Beach Haven, I pastored a lovely church, and after being there for just a month, Denny Grimes walks down the aisle, a 50-year-old alcoholic addicted to everything a human could be addicted to. He's a local music star, and he weeps his way to the altar, gives his heart and life to Christ, and Jesus transformed him and changed him, and Denny began to reach all of his friends. They were in the joints, they were in the honky-tonks, they were across the river in Columbus, up and down Victory Drive, and so we had addicts and drunks and strippers and uh, drug dealers and addicts of all kinds showing up, giving up, giving their heart and life to Jesus Christ, and I've got to tell you, it was an exciting time. I mean, you want to see God do something. You take people that can't think, you know, a straight thought for more than 30 seconds, give them to Jesus, put them into worship, and I mean, they blow the roof off the place because they're aware They're aware of their guilt before God, and they know there's a devil. Oh, they're absolutely convinced of it. They're on a first-name basis with him. And that's what took place. And for six months, we were rolling along, winning the least likely people in all the Chattahoochee Valley to come to Jesus Christ, and they did. And after about six months, the power shut off. We lost our current. It's like we had unpaid bills and someone shut the current off. And we went on for six months wondering what in the world's going on. Where'd the power go? And then it dawned on me. About the time the power was shut off and we stopped seeing all those conversions, Lola Cheney passed away. And she was our resident prayer warrior who was pleading with God for hours a day for Him to move in revival and had been for years. And it broke loose that one Sunday when Denny Grimes came to Jesus Christ. I realized that and quickly led a prayer movement in our church. And guess what happened? The lights came back on. The power came back on. Hey, do you know something? There are some people whose prayer life is so pathetic and their sense of humility and need before God is so superficial. They could stop praying and nobody would notice. And that's true with many people. That's true with Sunday school classes. Some Sunday school classes could completely go out of business and nobody would notice. 
Many deacon ministries could go out of business and nobody would notice. Many pastors could leave the ministry and nobody would notice because there's no power, there's no difference being made. God, make us different here at Beach Haven. If something goes aside, may it be like Lola Cheney, we notice there is a diminishing, an elimination, a power. Next level praying groans at personal conflict and it takes the gasp at the culture and the groan of personal conflict and turns it into a move to grab hold of God and all of His power. And there's great, great opportunity and there's great promise by Jesus if we'll get into that position. Matthew 5.3, you've memorized it. It's where Jesus said, Blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. God blesses the poor in spirit. You realize, I don't have what it takes. My culture is collapsing around me. I, I don't have anything within me but mischief and evil to turn it around. And they're depending on me. They're, they're coming to the bank of my soul and I'm busted. I'm bankrupt. I don't have anything to give. Oh God, would you come through and do something in my heart and life that I may take care. God, all I've got are two loaves and fishes, but I got 15,000 to feed. Would you come through? It's that kind of person that's going to be used by God. But beloved, make sure you understand if you don't get to that point, you'll never experience a powerful move of God in your heart and life. We gasp at the culture. We groan at our personal conflict. But look, don't stop there. There's more. Next level praying grows in spiritual combat. Well, Jesus did this in Luke chapter 4. He spent 40 days fasting and praying. 40 days fasting and praying. That leads to Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. In Luke 4, he's giving 40 days to fasting and prayer. In Luke 6, 12, he gives a whole night before he calls his disciples. And he did a good job. Jesus spent substantive time in prayer. Jesus did combat in prayer. Now, this is not what most would do. They would look for other religious measures and means, but Jesus sought the face of God. Ron Dunn said this, and I hope you'll put this down good, straight, and forever. Prayer is not substitution for the work, nor is prayer preparation for the work. Prayer is the work. Prayer is the work. In other words, prayer is where the battle is won. And when we do evangelism, that's just a cleanup operation. We go through and clean up, gather up the spoils that God has won through prayer. And so we're very, very careful never to undertake more activity than what we can adequately bathe in prayer and we repent from doing so. In other words, we do not seek to enter into a day and what it may bring without adequately bathing it in prayer. We do not seek to parent or discipline or make decisions about children's education and other issues that arise with them without adequately bathing it in prayer. We do not step into the workplace without adequately bathing that day at work in prayer. We, we do not teach a Sunday school class or a Bible study or lead a worship service without adequately bathing it in prayer. We dare not even try outreach without adequately bathing it in prayer. And we repent from doing so because we want to do more than just go through the motions. We, we want to do more than merely fill an assignment. 
We, we want to do more than merely be faithful. And it is a myth that all God expects of us is to be faithful. Oh, no, no, no. God expects us to be faithful, but God also expects us to be fruitful. He intends for us to have the power of heaven upon all of our service. Whether it's with our children, our work, our, our family, or our church family, God wants us to be a people who are known for raising the dead. Because he's not into making good people, uh, bad people good. He's into making dead people live through every one of the children of God. And so we bathe things in prayer. We pray through a matter with all of our heart. We don't sprinkle it. We don't give it a bird bath. We don't, we don't shower. We bathe it in prayer until our soul becomes wrinkly and pruny as if we've been soaking in water ourselves. We bathe it in prayer. So with cultural corruption and personal combat, we've got enough to pray over and thank God through the blood of Jesus Christ, he has purchased for us everything we need to make a difference. I recall back in 2002, uh, Michelle and I were able to go on our first cruise. It was a marvelous thing because the moment we stepped on board, everything was paid for. The room, all the meals, all the entertainment, everything came with the price of the ticket. And actually, we were sent on the cruise. It was paid by somebody else. And when you came to Jesus Christ as Savior, the moment you did, everything was paid for. Absolutely everything. My father spent much of his life as a young man on naval aircraft carriers. And every time he went out, the aircraft carrier was adequately supplied all the food that you would need if something broke loose they had all the weaponry they had all of the staff they needed in fact they had condensers on board to take the humidity and turn it into fresh water and super carriers today can actually take salt water and turn it into fresh water at the rate of 400,000 gallons a day they are sent into the world adequately supplied. And there are supply lines that are always open. And church of God, please, dear sweet people, listen to me. Everything you need to be pure and holy and effective before God, everything you need in your personal life to raise the dead, God has given you through the cross of Jesus Christ. You can have it. Jesus purchased it and it's, it's availability to you. And the open supply lines, your access to it, depends not on your behavior, does not depend upon your virtue. It depends on the death and resurrection, the continued life and the behavior of Jesus Christ. So it is permanent and forever in him. No one has to be a failure before God. You can take your prayers to the next level if you will grow in spiritual combat. And that's why in your worship guide today, we've got some emphasis on prayer. Starting August the 16th, we'll start meeting with a couple teams of deacons in some Sunday school classes and begin to pour out our hearts before God Tuesday mornings at 8 o'clock. We've got to have this, and I need everybody that's still breathing in our church family to attend and be a part of that. If you're not part of a Sunday school class, get one in today and be a part of this. And then the next evening, August the 17th, Dr. Mark Sterling, who did a dissertation in prayer, will be with us that evening to lead us in a prayer meeting. August the 17th. Now let me alert you. At this point, in this juncture in our worship service, you're probably going to do some combat. 
What the Holy Spirit is trying to get you to do is abandon all to Jesus in faith. Some of you, he's moving on you to repent and trust the gospel. And here's what will happen. He'll say to you, well, if you do that, you, you'll, you'll embarrass yourself in front of all these people. I've been doing this more than 30 years, large crowds and small, and no one that's ever walked this aisle has ever been embarrassed by these people, by God's people. It's a lie. They won't embarrass you. They won't talk about you. They will celebrate. You're in the midst of friends. Don't believe that lie. And, and then you will hear the lie, well, you're not that bad. Or they're taking this entirely too seriously. Well, hey, crucifixion, resurrection, that convinces me this is serious stuff. So you come. You open up your heart and life to Christ. You trust the cross. Then some of you will hear, I, I, I have, I've engaged in behavior. There's no way that God can love me. Hey, you let the cross comment on that. When Jesus Christ bled on the cross, the blood he shed was powerful enough to forgive any sin you've ever done. And quite frankly, I've got to tell you, if you were to come to Christ today, you wouldn't be the worst sinner among us. You wouldn't be. There are plenty here that have met Jesus that have probably done things worse than what you've done. You come. Don't you let that combat hinder you. Don't let the enemy keep you from coming to Christ. Others of you need to become part of Beach Haven. Don't let the enemy get in the way. Let God have a victory today. Others of you need to pray about some matters. Some of you need to give yourself to Christ in a new way. You come. You're going to do some spiritual combat. Do the right thing and do it.